All right, how is everybody doing? Good. Open up Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. I told you all, this is Matthew 5 to 7 is one of my favorite sections of the Bible. Obviously, all the Bible is great. Um, and, you know, kind of sounds weird to say you have a favorite part, but I just, Matthew 5 to 7, the Sermon on the Mount, just one of the um, absolute riches, richest portions of Scripture, one of my favorite passages, and um, really excited to be back here tonight. And uh, remember where we left off. We left off last week with Jesus on a hill just west of the Sea of Galilee, and there's a crowd around Jesus. And I think what uh, you got to be careful to do, at least in my mind, when I hear crowd, I think of like just a lot of people. But as we see increasingly throughout the ministry of Jesus, these crowds, it's more than just a large group of people. It's an increasingly chaotic scene that builds up around Jesus. It's like, have you ever seen the news clips of the Middle East when you have like at a funeral procession or something, you just got the throngs of people, thousands of people just really in a static state. That's really what you've got going around increasingly around Jesus throughout his earthly ministry. Because think back to the chapter four, we already saw that he was performing miracles, that he was already healing people of diseases. And let me tell you, if you start performing miracles, you're going to draw a crowd. You're going to get people's attention. You're going to get people coming to you. Uh, imagine if we heard about a guy up in Denton who could just heal people. No side effects. He didn't charge you anything. It was instantly effective. You're going to go see him, right? People are going to start hearing about this guy. Word is going to spread. People are going to start going. Think about earthly doctors. We spend just unfathomable amounts of money on doctors. We go far. We travel. We, we go see these people. And half of them, you got side effects that make your hair fall out, right? But you do it anyhow because it's, it's your best shot. Uh, but, but we do that with doctors who we're just hoping can make us better and we're hoping can minimize side effects and they're going to charge us tremendous amounts, but we travel to see them. So if there's a guy up in Denton who's healing for free, instant, no side effects, and your hair doesn't fall out, yeah, we're going to make that trip up to Denton, right? That guy's going to start getting some attention. And so in verse 1 of chapter 5, it talks about these crowds that are starting to form around Jesus. These are good-sized crowds. These are crowds of very excited people. And to get above these crowds, around this throng of people, above this throng of people that's around him, verse 1 tells us that he went up on a mountaintop. He went up on a hill that got him above his audience. And when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on top of the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and he began to teach them. The first part of the Sermon on the Mount that Alejandro led us through last Wednesday, verses 3 to 12, what we often call the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes. They are the essential characteristics of a person who is part of God's 
kingdom. And you'll remember what Alejandro taught us. It's a radical transformation. It's a radically different way of thinking. The world's priorities get turned upside down. Um, Just look at a few examples here. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the gentle. So often you see that the attitudes, the behaviors, the characteristics that this world doesn't value. This world doesn't value humility, doesn't value gentleness. This world doesn't value hungering, seeking after righteousness. But as you saw in verses 1 through 11, these are the essential characteristics of those who would be part of God's kingdom. And those things that are not valued in this world are the highest esteem when it comes to God's kingdom. Tonight, we'll look at verses 13 to 16. Verses 13 to 16. And these verses, when we look at verses 13 to 16, it's going to start telling us, Jesus is starting to teach us, as disciples of his living in this world, how are we to act? How are we to interact with this world? How are we to impact this world? Are you still in this world? Yeah. If you're here tonight, you are still in this world. Now, if God was done with you in this world, does he have the capability to take you? Yeah. God has the capability to call you home as a follower of his at any minute. At any minute, he's Lord over your life. He's sovereign over your circumstances. But he hasn't taken you home yet. It reminds me so much of Paul when he was writing to the Philippians. And he talked, you know, hey, my eager desire is to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. But I'm still here. And as long as God has me here, I'm going to serve the gospel. I'm going to serve you. I'm going to serve the church. It's the attitude that we should have as followers of Christ, realizing that, If our purposes on this earth were finished, God would have called called us home already. But the fact that we're here means that this is where God wants us to be. And that we still have a purpose to serve God's kingdom in the here and now. And in these verses tonight, he's going to start telling us how to do that. He's going to give us some insight into how to do that. And it's a big deal because it's about us impacting others. Which is a different way of thinking because we are so individualistic. We are so individualistic. We are so caught up in our own lives. Uh, what, what is life about from my perspective? What am I doing for myself? What do I want to do? Most people live for themselves. But as a follower of Christ, you remember the I am second bracelets? Like, I don't like to get nitpicky with stuff because I think their intentions were probably good, but that's really not biblical, right? Because Christ is first, everybody else is second, and you're, I guess, third after everybody else, right? I mean, that's uh, uh, Jesus, what's the most important commandments? Love God and love other people. Love God and love other people. The, the um, Christian life is not an individualistic life. We, we know that in one sense from the church, because we're part of the body of Christ, 
and we're called to serve the church, to be a healthy part of the church. But as we see tonight, our impact is to even go beyond the church. And we see this in numerous places throughout the Bible. Um, but it's something that is so easy for us to forget, especially when, as people, we live surrounded by and influenced by such an individualistic way of thinking. But as followers of Christ, we should live to benefit others, ultimately for the ultimate purpose of glorifying God. That's a key piece, right? That's a key piece there. It's not just serving others for the purpose of doing good. Mark Cuban gives a lot of money to a lot of people. He does a lot of philanthropy. If you ask him, though, he says, I do it because it makes me feel good. I do it because I like to do good things. That's not the Christian life. That's part of it, right? We take that part where we do want to help others, but ultimately it's for the purpose of serving God, serving his kingdom, and glorifying God. It's such a key difference. Such a key difference. So the theme that I would give you for verses 13 to 16 is real simple. Glorify God by blessing others. Glorify God by blessing others. Jesus teaches this in verses 13 to 16 with two metaphors, two very familiar metaphors that I'm sure you've all heard this a million times. Salt and light. So our strategy here tonight, we're going to do three things. We're going to read the passage first. Second, we're going to look to understand these metaphors. What would the immediate audience of Jesus have understood him to be, be saying? And how does that apply to us now? And then our third objective will be just to talk generally in practical terms. How do we do this? How do we put this into play in our own lives? That's the remarkable thing about the Bible to me. Well, there's a lot of remarkable things, but that's one of the remarkable things about the Bible to me is written 2,000 years ago. Jesus gave these words 2,000 years ago, yet they have the same impact, purpose, and meaning for us today as his followers, as his disciples. It's, it's just as relevant to us as if we were those disciples in verse 1 that gathered around him. So let's begin with reading these two metaphors. Keeping in mind, again, Jesus is surrounded by this crowd of people, and Jesus is teaching them what it means to be a follower of his. And this is what he says. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. The two metaphors jump out at you there. You see them very clearly. Metaphor one, you are the salt of the earth. For both of these, the salt illustration, the light illustration, we have to step back and say, what does Jesus mean? What does he mean? What is it about salt? What benefits does salt have? What, what would um, Jesus' followers, those sitting there listening to him, 
what would they have understood about salt and how it's a benefit to the world? Well, there's a few different benefits to salt. And people get really hung up on like, okay, which one of these did Jesus mean? You know, I don't think that's necessarily important. Because I think salt preserves food and it was pretty expensive. Yeah, that's one of them. Yeah, salt was expensive. So we, you know, I mean, it's easy for us to get salt. Like you read these history stories of like, oh, sugar was so expensive or salt was so expensive. And like for us, it's like, well, you just go to Walmart, right? Like we live in such a unique weird time in this world, the time in human history. Like what we experienced. They used to people salt back in like the Roman days. Yeah, yeah, it was that rare. Like you, it, it required a lot of work and a lot of effort. Now it's like we throw it on the floor to dance on it, right? I mean like. Many African peoples also use salt as a political, like Matsumusai, you know, around the West African. We live in a unique time in history. So you got to keep that in mind, right? Like the followers of Jesus, what is it? Is it Morton's, the one with the lady with the umbrella? Is that Morton's? That's not what the lady, that's not what the people in Jesus' audience would have immediately thought about. Okay, we'll talk about it. And, and, and like I said, that we're going to talk about a few different uses of salt that would have perhaps come to mind. Some people like to really latch on to one of these, but you go find like three really good commentaries and three really good commentaries will give you three really good ideas on it. Uh, I think there's uh, just the bigger picture that Jesus has in mind here. But at one point, or in certain uh, proportions, salt was a key ingredient, actually, in fertilizer. And now you got to be careful with that. If you go dump salt on your dad's lawn, it's going to kill it, right? Um, tonight's a lesson on following Christ, not agriculture. So if you go home and dump salt in your mom's garden, I disclaim all responsibility. But um, one of the uses that the audience of Jesus would have been familiar with in right proportion, it, it was the key, a key ingredient in a common type of fertilizer. And that would have been one of the benefits. Another one that Ian brought up and one of the most I guess well-known and important uses of salt was as a preservative. So today, you go kill your deer, right? And you're like, okay, I got meat for months now, and I'm going to go put this in my freezer. Take it to church. That's right. You take it to church. They're going to process it for you. We got an awesome church, right? Like how many churches can say that? Like it's not a sacrificial system, but it looks like it. You end up with sausage. I will miss pulling up and seeing the hog head getting sawed off. Before you know? Hey, it was a unique experience. I'm grateful for it. But they obviously didn't have that. So meat in just room temperature or outside temperature in Middle Eastern time or in first century Middle East would rot relatively quickly. So one of the um, things that the audience of Jesus would have been most familiar with would be rubbing salt into the meat as a preservative to help slow the decaying process. Uh, another obvious use of salt that we're familiar with is it simply makes things taste better. It, most uh, things that we eat have some salt in it because it makes the food so much better. It has that flavor 
enhancing effect. And so uh, you can see really, no matter what type of illustration you take uh, or angle you take, you see how all of these would perhaps play a role in illustrating what the Christian life is to be like. When it comes to uh, the fruitfulness of God's kingdom, we should be a key ingredient in helping the fruitfulness of God's kingdom. From a decaying standpoint, there's no doubt that we live in a world decaying from the effects of sin. We see the effects of sin all around us, all the time. And as Christians, our influence should be a, a preserving effect in this world where we slow down the effects of sin. We, we, uh, are, we slow down the decaying process that comes from sin. But the overall point that Jesus is making is that we should benefit, be a benefit to this world in bringing God glory and pointing people towards him. And if we're not serving the world and God in this way, then we've lost our purpose on this earth. We've lost our purpose. That is why God has you here, to glorify him and to serve the people around you and pointing them to him, to have that Christian influence in their lives. People who would never have the opportunity to hear a sermon about Jesus. People that don't have parents who are ever going to tell them about Jesus. People who are never going to randomly pick up a Bible in their house and start reading. They should have the opportunity to have the influence of Christ in their lives because of their interaction with you. They should be pointed to Christ when they interact with you. And if we're not serving the world in that way, if we're not serving God in that way, then we've lost our purpose on this earth. In verse 13, he says, you are the salt of this earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Now, if Mr. Palfrey was here, he could object because he's a chemistry teacher. Your dad's a, at, at a at, uh, Texas Wesleyan University, is that right? All right, a PhD in chemistry, and he could jump on Jesus here and say, hey, salt cannot become not salt. I was just about to ask, how can salt become not salt? Salt cannot become not salt. But Jesus, is Jesus giving a chemistry lesson here? Yeah. I think the main reason he would say that is because he was in the Navy, so he knows to eat whatever slop is put in front of him. Maybe. <laughs> Perhaps, because that, that is true. We're learning a whole lot about Mr. Palfrey tonight. He was also in the Navy. But Dr. Palfrey, the chemistry professor, would um, absolutely agree with Tyler here. Salt cannot be made not salt. I mean, salt is sodium chloride, right? And like, if it's no longer sodium fluoride, then it's no longer salt. It's, uh, you, you, you can't make salt not salt. But Jesus isn't giving a chemistry lesson here. He's giving an illustration that his audience would have been completely familiar with. Because when it says salt, again, we're not talking about the Morton umbrella lady. We're not talking about what you go to Albertsons and buy off the shelf. 
But what, what the audience of Jesus and what you, if you lived in first century Palestine, would use for salt, if you were able to come across this very valuable resource, it would be harvested from salt marshes. And yes, it would have sodium chloride in it, but this isn't coming from like some Morton's factory where it's purified sodium chloride. Like what they would harvest from these salt marshes is going to have all sorts of mixed in impurities and other elements, other minerals, um, things like that. Um, and because sodium chloride, the salt port portion of what they would get from these marshes is much more soluble than dissolves in water much more easily than all these other elements. If you didn't take care of it, if you didn't take care of your salt, then it was very easily for that sodium chloride to leach out, to evaporate out, or not evaporate out, but to, to um, leak out, dissolve out, leaving you with this substance that really looked the same, but didn't have any sodium chloride in it left. So it was completely useless as a fertilizer ingredient. It was completely useless in preserving any kind of meat. It no longer had any flavor to it that tasted anything like salt. It tasted more like dirt. And so it, so what, what the audience of Jesus would have understood to be salt could very much lose its saltiness. And at that point, it's not good for any of those purposes that it was harvested for. It's good for play sand. It's good for play sand. It's good to be thrown out and trampled on the streets. That would have been the illustration that they would have been familiar with. So how are we to be the salt of the earth? Well, we'll talk about that shortly. We'll get to the part three where we look to apply this stuff. But first, I want us to look at the second metaphor that Jesus gives us here. You are the light of the world. Verses 14 to 16, it says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. You, metaphor two, you are the light of the world. Your job in this world is to shine forth truth, to proclaim truth. Going back again to the fact that so many people are born in circumstances where they're not just going to hear about the things of God. They're not just going to hear about Christ. So many of us, not all of us, but many of us here had the blessing and the privilege of being born in houses where our parents told us about Jesus, where we got like six Bibles laying around at least, where I try to get you the message version of the MacArthur Study Bible. They don't make it yet. I don't know. But, uh, but uh, so many of us grew up in these circumstances, and we forget easily that other people don't have that same privilege. And again, our job is to be the light of the gospel, the light of truth in their lives, to live a life of goodness and righteousness for God's glory that points people to God. The goal here, and this is important because it's an easy trap for us to fall into, the goal here is not for people to think you're a good kid. It's not for people to say, 
oh, you know, that that Trey, he's just so mature. He's got such a good head on his shoulders. Or that Ian, both of them. They're just, you know, just such sweet boys, such good boys. That's not the goal. The goal in this life is not to heap up praise for yourself and not for people to see how good you are. The goal for your life is to reflect the goodness of God so that when people look at you, they say, there is the goodness of God reflected in their life. The light that shines off of you is simply the light of God's truth, the light of God's goodness. He says that so clearly in verse 16. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. They can see in your life that your goal is simply to live in obedience to your Father, to love your Father. If you love God as your Father, and you know him in that way, that's the desire of your heart, to live obediently to him, to know him, to have a life that reflects his goodness. This metaphor also implies that you're not, and I wouldn't say it even implies, I would say Jesus makes it very clear, you're not sitting on the sidelines of life. You're not sitting on the sidelines of life. He says, You're a light to the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket. Instead, the lamp is put on a lampstand and it gives light to all who are in the house. Do you remember what Jesus prayed for his disciples and their relationship to the world? Did Jesus pray, Father, Give these disciples of mine a castle in the desert where they could go and be isolated from the sinful influences of this world. No. You see that at certain points in church history, right? You see people who say, hey, I'm tired of this world. And trust me, I get it. I feel that way too a lot. I'm tired of this world. I'm going to go hide in the desert. That's not the biblical pattern. The pattern that... Uh, the apostles set for us. I, look at Paul. Paul was a tent maker. Do y'all remember how Priscilla and Aquila, they flee Rome, and I think, I'm pretty sure it's Corinth, or maybe it's Ephesus, one of those two places. They run into Paul. Do you know where they run into Paul? Making tents together. Corinth. Was it Corinth? All right. They, then they go to Ephesus, I think. But the, they, uh, they, they're making tents together. Paul's out there working at his job, but as he's doing so, he's telling people about Christ. And then they meet this guy named Alexander from Egypt, and they tell him about Christ. Um, to, To be, Jesus prayed for his disciples to be in the world, but not of it. Do you know what that means? Do you know what it means to be of the world? Go ahead. To basically worship him. To worship the world is definitely one way to be of the world. To be in your flesh like in sin. Yeah, the, typically, yeah. I mean, that's the result is sinful life. To go along with whatever they want you to do. Yeah, to go along with whatever you want, they want you to do. Right, yeah. So, like, to be of something is to be of the same substance, right? 
is to be taken from, of and from. In fact, in Greek, usually the same word gets used for of and from. It's the same idea. It's uh, like if I have a bucket of water and then I go take a cup of water out of that bucket, it's still water. It's the same substance. Whereas if I go take a rubber ball and put it in the bucket of water, the rubber ball is in the bucket of water, but it doesn't become water. It's not of water. And that's the prayer that Christ had for his disciples, that as long as God had his purpose for them to be on this earth, for them to be in the world, but not of it. That means we don't take our way of thinking from this world. We don't take our philosophies from this world. We don't take our passions, our loves, our desires from this world. We take them from Christ, from his word. We're to be children of God, sons of God, disciples of Christ, not of this world, but we're still in this world for the purpose of glorifying God, of pointing people to him. To be a light in this world implies or means that you are in it in a way that the world can see you and that you can influence the world. God didn't call us to be hermits. Lamps, I mean, Jesus gives them the absurd illustration. You're, you're absurd if you go light a lamp and then put it under a bucket or a bowl or a basket or whatever. You, you defeated the whole purpose. You might as well have not done that. But like these lights here, right? They get put up where they can shed light into the whole room. So what can we do to be salt and light? Well, I'm going to give us well, three broad categories to think of. The first two are real fast. The first two are real fast. The first real broad question I want you to ask is, who does this apply to? Everyone. Everyone. You know, so we saw in chapter 4 that Jesus called Peter and Andrew, James and John. Very familiar people with us. But... Who's he talking to here? The answer we've talked about already tonight back in verse 1. Who's Jesus talking to here? The disciples. Like all those that had gathered around him. Disciple means student. Student of somebody. A follower of somebody. And not in the way you're a student of your, you know, your math teacher. More like a disciple is somebody who comes under a teacher because... They want to be influenced, shaped, and molded by that person in a deep, life-altering way. It, it, these are the, this crowd of people followed around. Jesus is talking to all his disciples, all those who would be followers of his, all who would come under his teaching. And so it, it, it's a wake-up call for all of us. If we call ourselves disciples of Jesus Christ, then what this passage is telling us is we must find ways to be salt and light in this world. It's not an option. It's for all his disciples. It's the first overarching question and point. The second one, do you care about the people in this world? Do you care about people in this world? It's easy to be cynical about this world. Turn on the news. 
on any given day. And it takes you about five minutes, maybe, to get cynical, right? Again, that shouldn't surprise us. We talked about it a moment ago. We live in a decaying world. We live in a sinful world, a world that is just ravished by um, the influences of sin. And even the New Testament tells us is under the control and influence of Satan. So it shouldn't surprise us. The question, though, is do you have compassion for the people of this world that don't know Jesus Christ? Do you reflect on just how blessed you are that God has called you out of darkness into the light of his truth? Reflect on the fact that you weren't worthy of that. I wasn't worthy of that. None of us were worthy of that. It's nothing that we earned by being good. It's something we should be just eternally and extraordinarily grateful for because of our unworthiness. And so when we look out at the world around us, do we have compassion for those people and love for those people that we know are no more unworthy than we were and they haven't had the gospel preached to them. They haven't ever had somebody tell them about Jesus Christ. Do you care about the people in the world? It's e- and you know, it's easy to become cynical and you know, I don't like this system of thought or this way of thinking or this system of things. But don't lose sight of the individuals that are in there that God's called us to serve. The third overarching question I would ask us, and this is the one we'll talk about a little bit more, your life in this world. Think about your life in this world. So what are some of the arenas that you live in this world? Does that make sense, that question? Like, what are some of the stages of this world that you live on? Or just what are some of the areas of this world that you interact with? Sports and athletics, absolutely. Absolutely. Sports and athletics, I kind of sort of had that one down on my list. But, yeah, it's a it's definitely a big one for um, your age, right? I, and uh, if it's in school, be it even a private Christian school or outside of school, there's going to be a lot of unbelievers on that team. Just as importantly, not only are you going to have a lot of unbelieving teammates, you're going to have unbelieving coaches. And you're going to have unbelieving parents at those games, unbelieving referees, unbelievers all around, right? So absolutely. Very great. Great one. Uh, neighborhood, neighborhoods. Yeah, neighborhoods. Yes, yes. Um, absolutely. I mean, uh, I don't know anything about your neighbors at all, but uh, th- it's just an illustration of how, like, you've gotten to know people, right, that live around you. It's an example of that. You you go out, you, you see each other walking in and out every day. You go to the common areas, the playgrounds, the pools, whatever. There's going to be um, unbelievers around all the time. Neighborhood is a great example. Um, hanging out with the other teenagers at my park. Yeah, absolutely. Because there's going to be unbelieving friends that come out there, unbelieving strangers that you don't know. Absolutely. What are some other ones? I'm sorry? 
Did I miss the, what? I, I'm. Oh, it's their neighborhood. Yeah, neighborhood. Yeah, you're right. Family. Family. Oh, that's a good one. I actually didn't put that one down. That's a really good one too, though, right? Like especially. Oh man. And that's a convicting one. That's maybe why I didn't. I was hiding from myself, you know, because like family is tough. I think it's like uh, Christmas, and all of a sudden you're crammed into this house with like twenty people that, like, you're just born into their circumstances, right? It's not like you cho- chose them as friends. It's a. It, it can be tough. That's a great illustration. Your job. Your job. Absolutely. And you can start having jobs young, right? Like, I, I guess, how old do you have to be to get, like, a turn-in application? <laughs> yeah, how old do you have to be 16? But, you know, you can start mowing yards. Like, yeah, you can start mowing yards, like, 12, you know? Go pushing that. Yeah, there you go. Start pushing that around the neighborhood. That You can start working right away. A sad thing, but youth group. Youth group, yeah, hey. No, that's, that is a, I mean, y'all are young, you know, you, there's, in your social group, I mean, this happens at any age in life, but especially at your younger age, there's many of you who are still wrestling with the truths of the gospel, and what does it mean to be a follower of Christ, and like, I know I've heard my parents say this, but what does it mean to me, um, and uh, then you bring friends in, right? Friends who might be unbelievers. So yeah, youth group is a great example. Me? Yeah. School? School, absolutely. School's a good one. You got yeah. friends. You got... No, but it's still a good one. Hey, I'm sure, yeah, even if you're, even if you're homeschooled, I'm still sure you're still interacting with other homeschoolers but if you go to school too like public school you got teachers you've got classmates you've got the staff at the school you've got the crosswalk lady I mean you got them all um, social online platforms on oh man and you're getting too deep for me there but yeah online Okay, I think that's enough. All right, what's one more? All right, one more. Just out in public in general. Out in public in general. And that's a great point, man. Like, yeah, I mean, that's just, that's a, that's a great point. Like, when you sit down to get a haircut, how can you be a blessing to the person cutting your hair or checking out, you know, or checking out at the grocery store? The bottom line is, all these examples show us that if we live in this world, we're gonna interact with this world, right? And so it's on us as followers of Christ, when we see this, when we see that, okay, we're the salt of the wor- this world, we're, we're the light of this world, our job is to bless people in a way that points them to Christ and glorifies God. The question is, okay, how do we do it? How do we do it? You know, look at Galatians. I'm just going to read a few passages here. Galatians 5, verse 22. I'm going to say this. The first way, live out the fruits of the Spirit. Live out the fruits of the Spirit. I'm going to read these off to you. And as I read them off, 
just imagine living this way towards those who are in the world that don't know Christ. And imagine this too. So Paul said, we're going to read Philippians in a minute. Paul, imagine living this way in contrast to what people normally experience in this life. Imagine living these attitudes out. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Do you think people in the world see those attitudes lived out often? No, they don't. We don't live in a world of patience. We don't live in a world of kindness, in a world of gentleness. We don't live in a world of self-control. Yet, when these fruits of the Spirit characterize your life, and so the person you're showing up to and, and playing sports with every week sees these characteristics in your life, in comparison to what they see around them every day. Do you think that maybe gets a little bit of attention? Do you think that maybe that's a little bit of light shining into their lives? At some point, they want to know, why are you different? Like, why is your life characterized by these kind of things? And I love what Paul says at the end of verse... um, 23, against such things there is no law. Obviously, he's contrasting this with the Old Testament law, but I would say that he's also saying, hey, there's just no, I mean, it, there's no law against it. They, these are things that even the world recognizes as noble and worthy attributes. These are the kinds of attitudes when, when we live them out it gets people's attention I, I think of um, on uh, Philippians 2 Philippians 2 I love this I think of work like work And I don't think it's just where I work. I'm pretty sure this is across the board, but you probably see it in school too. Is a cesspool of negativity. Complaining. Like, do people complain around you a lot? Yeah, it doesn't end, okay? Like, unfortunately, now we have like chat rooms at work where it's just like a constant flow of complaining. It's like, all right, I'm just going to mute that because listen what Paul says. Philippians 2.14 do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. You know, when you show up to Chick-fil-A or Walmart or wherever it is that you find your job, Trust me, the people around you are going to be complaining a lot. But you show up, a life characterized by the fruits of the Spirit, a life that is characterized by not complaining, 
you are going to appear as a light in the midst of darkness. And I promise you, people are going to want to know more. It's going, I promise you, it's going to give you the opportunity to share the gospel with people. And I mean, you talk about complaining at work. That might not be them. It might be you complaining. I mean, and that's Paul's point. Like, make sure you're not one of those people, right? Try not to complain that other people are complaining. I try not to complain that other people. That's why I mute them. Yes, yes. Try not to complain. It goes back to contentment, fruits of the Spirit, right? Um, it, 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 Ephesians 6. Five to seven. So people can be surprised, and we really we could go on all night. I'm just going to give you a few examples. But Ephesians six um, five to seven. Slaves. So put your put employers or I'm sorry employees there, right? So like as yourself, you yourself there as an employee. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling and sincerity of your heart as to Christ. Not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, render service as to the Lord and not to men. Recognizing that when you go to work, you're there. And this apply this to school, apply this to any kind of extracurricular, be it theater arts or choir or um, anything that you're involved with, go and do it as if you're doing it for the Lord and not for your coach, not for um, not for your teacher, not even for your parents, but you're doing it for the Lord. I promise you, it leads to the opportunity to share the gospel. And I love it when I get the opportunity to talk about Christ at work because, I mean, I like my job. It's fine. I'm not like particularly passionate about it. It's, I'm very grateful for it. But when I get the opportunity to talk about Christ at work, I'm like, yes, the purpose is fulfilled. I mean, it serves other purposes and taking care of my family, but like nothing makes it feel more fulfilling than when I get to share Christ with people. And it happens. It happens when you're living in a way that you see, and you don't have to do it perfect. You're going to make mistakes. But um, doing it in a way to honor and glorify the Lord. Galatians 6.10. I got a few more here. We'll see what. Galatians 6.10. Listen to what he says. He says, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people and especially to those who are the household of the faith. So what he says there is we should look to do good for other people, right? Priority one, he says, especially those who are the household of the faith, especially to the church. Like priority one, you need to find a way to be serving the church. You need to be finding a way to serve one another. Your church is the first priority. But he doesn't stop it there. He says especially the church, but while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. It's a whole different perspective when you step out on your day saying, okay, how can I be a blessing to this person? 
or to that person. And you know what it's weird, what's weird too? I've started to do this before I go into like meetings with people. You know, before you would perhaps get a little intimidated by a meeting with somebody, especially if they were a boss or something like that. But my prayer now, and I pray usually before like any meeting with anybody. I usually pray before I go in. But now the prayer more than anything is, God, help me be a blessing to this person. Help me to help me to be salt and light in this person's life. And sometimes it takes wisdom. Sometimes it's not exactly clear, okay, how can I do that? But that's part of the prayer too, right? Constantly praying, Lord, show me as a follower of Christ, how do I serve the church and how do I serve you in this world? How do I serve you in this world? Unfortunately, you can have the flip side, right? You can have, I think the, the question I started us off with is, is your life a credit to the gospel or a hindrance? Can your life be a hindrance to the gospel? Can your life be a hindrance to you being salt and light? How? What are some ways? Acting the opposite of the gospel says. Yeah? Uh, I thought you were going to say something else. Acting the opposite of Jesus. Yeah, acting the opposite of the fruits of the Spirit. So, let me, I, I'm going to try to do this. This could be hard. I didn't practice this beforehand. But you're unloving. You're unjoyful. You're unpeaceful. You are impatient. You're unkind. You're rude. You're unfaithful. You're coarse, you're difficult, you have no self-control. What's your gospel witness going to be like in the workplace, in school, in athletics? It's tough, right? Like, when you're the unloving guy, when you're the harsh, coarse person, yeah, how many people are opening up their lives to you and wanting to hear what, what the love of Christ is all about in that, in that case? It doesn't happen, right? It doesn't happen. And, and uh, I think so often as uh, Christians, it can be easy to have those kind of attitudes towards the world that are actually a hindrance to the gospel. Don't let that be the case. Jesus calls us, all of us, to be salt and light in this world. And the Bible is clear with us in so many different ways on how we can do that. Any questions, any other comments or questions on that? All right. Well, I'll pray for us and we can wrap it up. Lord, we do thank you for um, the opportunity to serve you that we to tell the world about you, that we can be used as instruments for your kingdom. And we just thank you for that privilege, that responsibility, and pray that you would help us to take that responsibility seriously and to reflect on it every single day, to seek to live in such a way that it honors you, that it gives us the opportunity to tell people about you. And uh, just pray, Lord, that 
you would give us a heart of compassion, kindness, and concern for the world around us. Pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.